Hello, everyone. This is a new episode of Vines to Wines. Welcome. In this episode, I'm talking with Paul Vandenberg, founder and owner of Paradisos del Sol Vineyard and Winery here in Washington Wine Country. So please enjoy. Paul Vandenberg is somewhat of a unique winemaker in the region here, and that's because he comes at farming with a ecological perspective. As you'll learn in the podcast, we talk through what sustainability means, and uh, we establish that it is a fluid term, and it can mean different things depending on who you're talking to and in what context. But for all general purposes, Paul takes the effort to be as sustainable as possible, and that really shows uh, through this podcast Uh, I just had a great time talking with him. I learned a lot. So if you're interested in uh, maybe what a sustainable wine growing operation looks like, then stay tuned. Paul Vandenberg, thank you for joining me. What was this place like? Or first off, when did you first start growing wine out here? Uh, We came to the Rattlesnake Hill region in 2003 after spending a couple of years searching for what I thought might be the sweetest spot on earth for growing grapes. What are these areas that you're looking at? Well, I used to work for big wineries. I have uh, worked with grapes uh, from all over southeastern Washington. In the early 90s, I was the largest producer of Walla Walla County wines. Okay. There were no vineyards in the Walla Walla Valley. The only vineyard was uh, close to Pasco. Charbonneau Vineyard. Wow. Rick Small at Woodward Canyon worked with some of the grapes. So uh, things have really changed since. Yeah, the, <laughs> a lot of things. You know, Walla Walla, Walla Walla has always been kind of an interesting area. It became famous without actually having any grapes. Really? You know, a wine region without vineyards. Really? Yeah, really nothing was planted uh, before 1990. Mm. And yet uh, through good fortune, Leonetti and some of those other people, uh, because they were the very early guys, mm-hmm. uh, developed quite a reputation as wine producers, and yet they weren't working with, with except for Rick Small, Walla Walla County grapes, much less Walla Walla Valley grapes, because there weren't any. What was the difference between the Yakima Valley and Walla Walla at that time? Yakima Valley had a lot more going on. We got into grapes earlier. I mean, okay. we had stuff here um, pre-prohibition. So did Walla Walla, for that matter. A lot of people don't realize that there were small vineyards all over uh, southeastern Washington, anywhere there were Italian immigrants, hmm. they planted an acre to a grapes for home use and quickly found out that the productivity was so great, they had more grapes than they needed. Yeah, I used to have a young man work for me whose grandfather uh, went around and bought up you know, a ton or two here, a couple tons there from these Italian, primarily Italian immigrant farmers. Uh, and then he was the broker for wineries. So there were wineries operating in 1913 Wow. In the Yakima Valley. People don't realize that yeah. prohibition is what killed everybody. So you got started uh, in Walla Walla, not as a wine grower, though? No, I wasn't in Walla Walla. I was actually working at a winery in Spokane. This was before? In the early 90s. Okay, yeah. That bought grapes from Charbonneau Vineyard in, down in Walla Walla County. Okay, yeah. What, uh, what led you to get into wine growing? Uh, I like to grow stuff. I'm a gardener. Mm-hmm. Um I like baking wine. I've I've found wine fascinating. I, I made wine for the first. I fermented things. I shouldn't say wine because there were no grapes involved. For the first time when I was thirteen, just out of curiosity, uh, I took up making things fairly seriously when I was nineteen. Uh, at the age of nineteen, I was living on my own uh, by federal law. That made me a legal head of household, entitled mm-hmm. to produce one hundred and fifty gallons of wine a year. 
Nice. And there's nothing in Washington state law that prevents a legal head of household from making and consuming wine in their own home. It's not illegal to consume alcohol when you're under 21 in Washington state, and it never has been. It's still that way today? Yeah, absolutely. So an 18-year-old at home with their parents can have a glass of wine. Absolutely. An 18-year-old living on their own who meets the the qualifications as a legal head of household Mm -hmm. can make wine at home. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You said you were... There was uh, something you were working on before wine. Before before you said there were no grapes originally when you were fermenting. Well, the first things I was fermenting when I was thirteen, and even at nineteen, I was playing with all sorts of fruit. And you know, there there really is no such thing as cherry wine. There is no such thing as honey wine. Wine, by definition, is grapes. Mm. So when you're working with honey, you're making mead. Yeah. But, and make, you had experience you're making, messing around and all that stuff. Yeah. If you make dandelion wine, it's really not wine. It's actually a form of beer because it's all vegetables. <laughs> Have you made that? Yeah. Dandelion a, wine or beer? Yeah, it's <laughs> a lot of work for, <laughs> you know, you got to be desperate. There's a reason people do wine from grapes instead of from dandelions. What the, grapes are the only thing that you can have a single ingredient and make something beautiful. So, yeah, yeah. so dandelion wine is a concoction. If you want to make wine out of cherries, you, again, you're going to have to add sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, almost all fruit wines involve first adding a bunch of water to reduce the acidity and then a whole bunch of sugar to get the fermentation to give you the kind of desired alcohol levels. And then most people want those fruit wines to be sweet, so a ton more sugar at the end. So every molecule of sugar that originates in the fruit, you're probably adding two molecules of sugar out of a bag. Can you make wine from almost any sort of fruit or plant? Well, that, that's what I'm saying. I don't like to call it wine. Or Yeah, people ferment well, stuff all over the world. Yeah, I guess. Can Bananas, you ferment anything and do a drink? You know, if it's got sugar. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, people, people have tried all sorts of things. and Yeah. As, as a judge of amateur home winemaking competitions, I've had to taste some pretty weird things. What's some of the weirdest things you've tasted? Uh, don't make wine out of tomatoes. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. It was not. Oh, man. Yeah, so uh, you were talking about why you came to the Yakima Valley specifically. So, Well, I grew up in the Tri-Cities, yeah. and my first jobs were in the Tri-Cities area. Um and uh, as I said, I've worked at some pretty big wineries. I worked, uh, I was the founding winemaker, you might say, at Badger Mountain Vineyard. I worked there a couple of times. And uh, when I went back there in um, 88, we were actually talking about forming a con- consortium with some other growers because that, that was the time when grape prices, uh, we were overproduced. Grape prices went in the toilet. We had planted way too much Riesling, Chenin uh, Blanc, Gewürztraminer, those sorts of things. And a farmer was begging wineries to buy those things at $100 a ton, which, I mean, there was mm-hmm. there was no money in it. Um, and several farmers were talking about getting together and building a facility to process their grapes to then sell bulk wine to the world. And they brought me on uh, because I'd worked at Badger Mountain before. They brought me on. Uh, that ended up not working out, but Bill Powers ended up, we built quite a facility at Badger Mountain. So that in uh, 1989, I processed 1,100 tons of fruit. Which it's a lot of fruit. It was a bigger percentage of Washington State's production back then than it is now. Yeah, and so I was working with vineyards all over. 
mm-hmm. um, seeing the characteristics. Uh, same when I went up to Spokane after that. Uh, I spent six years in Spokane. And again, uh, I was given very free reign up there. To uh, it, it was a winery that, quite frankly, was failing. They were losing money. Um, they, they were trying to sell it, but nobody wants to buy a winery that's losing money. <laughs> I can imagine. And we managed to turn it around pretty well. And uh, part of the thing was I got to... I got to get rid of the underperforming vineyards mm-hmm. that they had been working with and start to work with some really um, good stuff, including some of the stuff here in the Rattlesnake Hills. So, um, you know, in 1990, um, I was buying grapes from uh, all over southeastern Washington, like I said, Walla Walla County, Franklin County, Benton County, Yakima County, Grant County. Um, all over. Yeah. And so I really got to know, because I, I, I spent a lot of time in those vineyards, I got to know the characteristics of the different areas. And, um, you know, I, I find Red Mountain too hot. I worked on Red Mountain earlier in my career. Uh, I like Red Mountain wines, but I, I, I don't think they're the best we have to offer. Mm. Um, so we have cooler areas, we have warmer areas, and what the Rattlesnake Hills area is is kind of a very moderate thing, and moderation is really a wonderful thing when it comes to wine. So um, when I decided to to uh, get out of partnerships and things and be on my own, we spent I uh, spent quite a bit of time because I'd been working with vineyards in this area in the right. Rattlesnake Hills for quite a while. I spent quite a bit of time looking for the property that had the most going for it yeah and that's where i i settled where we're at we're, you settled out here in zilla mm-hmm. which we're on is the, we're on the night we're on the what i call the lower rattlesnake hills we're at the thousand foot level we've got these wonderful deep uh flood deposited silt loam soils mm-hmm. uh, having worked in vineyards with shallow rocky soils when water's short that's a real killer um our farm is on a promontory where a point that protrudes out into the valley um, from the uh, from where our house sits. So what does that mean? Well, from where our house sits, it's downhill in every direction. Okay, which is great for cold air drainage. Is there a specific? We always have slope? air movement. Yes, it's a lovely, mostly southerly slope, but some of it uh, has an as- aspect to the east, and some of it has an aspect to the west. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're in the Rosa Irrigation District, so we have super high quality water. Uh, so people are going to be able to farm that land for millennia. How have you seen uh, Rattlesnake Hills and the Zilla wine country change since, was it 2003 that you said? Well, that's when I moved here, but mm-hmm. I started working with vineyards here in 1986. So I imagine you've seen a lot of vineyards like Van Arnhem Vineyards right here pop up all over the place, right? Yeah. Did, has it just blown up or do you think it still has a lot of potential? To- oh, it, you know, the, I mean, the potential is unlimited. I mean, look, we're, we're sitting here and, and there's prime spots. Like you guys have prime spots occupied by cherries mm-hmm. uh, because this is a great area for growing so many things. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it's an economic thing. If grapes can generate more revenue for somebody who owns land than cherries or peaches, mm-hmm. they're going to, possibly grow grapes but when you look at land use in general and who owns right. the land i mean right. most most of the land around here is owned by large corporate farms and they're spending yeah. right next door to me on some what could be beautiful vineyard ground they just spent forty five thousand dollars an acre planting granny smith apples 
So tell me about. So they're going to expect those Granny Smiths to be making a lot of money for them, right? More, more than you would as a grape grower. Now, what Van Arnhem and Paradisos does that's different is we're not grape growers; we're wine growers. Our product is not truckloads of grapes; mm-hmm. it's cases of wine, mm-hmm. and so we're value added. Totally. Which is not what you have with cherries and apples and things like that. It's right. That's just a commodity that you ship off. Right. Yeah. Something that you might have an interesting perspective on is sort of the corporate farming versus small scale farming. And like, for instance, you were just mentioning corporate farming going on right next to you for the Granny Smith apples. Do you do you look at that and and does that touch you as far as like the sustainability of our earth and sustainable farming like i know that there are a lot of hot issues in 2021 as far as sustainable farming goes and basically how do you how do you manage a, a farm and a wine growing business sustainably and do you think about that as far as like using pesticides or uh just like the entire farming process because a lot of big farming corporations are kind of throwing caution to the wind in that sense well, the the corporate farms are are both the best and the worst in different aspects. Um, I've observed over the years, knowing small orchard owners, that they listen to crop consultants who are basically people who sell chemicals, um, and they don't necessarily follow the recommendations. They may say you should apply product X at 12 ounces per acre every 10 days. And they think, no, that's like the worst case scenario. I'm a better guy than that. I'll apply eight ounces per acre every 14 days. So they they use less pesticides, fertilizers, because that's coming directly out of their pocket. Mm. The money they don't spend is their income. Whereas when you're next to a corporate farm, the guy who's running that farm is an employee. Mm -hmm. He's getting advice from crop consultants who almost always work for a company that sells chemicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going to follow exactly those directions because the money doesn't come out of his pocket. And if something goes wrong, if there's bad environmental conditions and you get a big blow up right. of a fungus disease and you didn't apply chemicals at the recommended rate, mm-hmm. well, crap, you're out of a job. Do you think, so there's, sounds like there's a pretty big issue with crop consultants working for companies that sell One of the things I learned from Bill Powers at Badger Mountain is never use free consultants. They cost too much. Hire your own person. Right, right. Hire an independent person whose income is not dependent upon you putting products in your vineyard. That just makes sense, (laughs) honestly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, and almost everybody uses these these guys who work for companies that sell stuff Mm -hmm. because it's free. Right. Um, Bringing it back to you and your winery, uh, it's called Paradiso Del Sol. Del Sol or Del Sol? Del. Del Sol. Mm -hmm. Uh, How did you come up with that name? Well, I collect words, and paradise is a very interesting word. It it goes back to ancient Persia. Uh, It goes back to at least 5000 B.C., uh, working in a tasting room, you get to meet the most interesting person. So I was chatting with a woman from Iran one day, and she called up her sister, who is a professor of ancient languages, specifically ancient Persian. We had, cool. I had a consult with her to find out that what I'd read was right. That's good. So <laughs> it, it comes from a Persian phrase, paradaitsa, 
And a okay. paradise is a walled-in garden in the desert. And, you know, we're a desert here. Yeah. I mean, if it's not irrigated, you're walking across stuff that's brown and crunchy, particularly this year. Totally. Um, we are very dependent upon irrigation. And so I view, as I look out the windows here, where you got this wonderful view across the valley, these are all gardens. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not necessarily enclosed by walls. But, but they're paradise. The sentiment is totally there. You can see where the gardening ends and the desert starts, and we're kind of in this oasis of right. farming. Yeah. And it's all about the sun. I mean, everything mm-hmm. I do in the vineyard is focused on sunlight exposure. Mm-hmm. So gardens of the sun is one translation of it. Right. Uh, that's a great, great name and an explanation that I wasn't expecting, but the Persian thing, I like that, though. Uh, so, And, of course, I chose what is an ancient Spanish thing because mm-hmm. uh, Berta and I are working in the vineyard and Berta prefers not to speak English. So when we're working, when I, when I have a crew of four or five people helping me harvest, mm-hmm. we're speaking Spanish. So who's Berta? Berta is a woman who's worked for with us for over 20 years. Uh, she's a, I will say, a semi-retired professional farm worker. A lot of what she does in her life is uh, be a grandma. <laughs> uh but she likes to work for me. We pay her really well. She is uh, incredibly skilled and talented and very quick at what she does. Um, we let, she can come and go as she pleases. Mm-hmm. We let her have very flexible hours. I mean, the only time that's different is when we're harvesting. Then we have a, put a team together, uh, and she's the lead person for that. Uh, we work with a bunch of members of her extended family. We call them the abuelos because most of them are these older women Mm-hmm. semi-retired who like to work a couple days a week in a pleasant vineyard setting setting where um, nobody ever tells them to go faster. They don't get paid piecework rate. We pay everybody hourly rate mm-hmm. and we pay the kind of hourly rate that the guys who are really hustling their asses off picking apples get. Yeah. So is that how, um, who else works for you? What's the structure of your business? Is it just, uh, it's really myself. My wife does my office work and paperwork for me, but everything else I'm, I'm the prime person bear to works for me at this time of year. Cause we're busy with shoot thinning and leaf pulling. Mm-hmm. Um, and once that's done, she'll work maybe a little bit here and there where I need some hand. And then she's, uh, like I said, my lead person at harvest time, but the rest of the time it's just me. Right on small operation. Mm-hmm. How big is your vineyard? Uh, 15.2 kilometers. Kilometer. Didn't expect an answer like that. Did I did you? not, but vineyards are not acres. Okay. Vineyards are not soybeans. It's not corn. It's not hay. Okay. It's how many rows do you have and how long your rows. We don't do anything in our vineyard based on square footage. I mean, that makes when sense. When we prune, it's so many buds per meter. It's when we're shoot thinning, it's so many shoots per meter. Mm-hmm. It's so many clusters per meter. It's so many kilograms of fruit per meter. Is that sort of the standard around here or did you pick that up somewhere else? And you're all, all scientific research is done on a per meter basis. of Right. Cordon. Right. Yeah. And then translated f- to acres for people who insist on thinking that way. Totally. Totally. Uh, we just, I've always just heard acres, but the, the distance sort of measurement makes so much more sense because that's all it really is. Yeah, if you spend any time out in that vineyard, that's what you're doing. Is how long will it take me to finish this row? Yeah, you're thinking rows. You're not thinking acres because you have no. You're standing there. You have no idea what an acre is. Yeah, and I don't know. A lot of that work in the vineyard can be so repetitive that it does feel like a distance that you're working through rather than a. Yeah, and I, I think it's really interesting that cultures all over the world have a measurement that's approximately a meter. 
Mm-hmm. You've got a yard, a varia. There's all these different terms. And they all seem to be between 34 and 40 inches, okay. which is realistically all that you can see in front of you. Yeah, it's like we like to break it down to about how wide our hands reach and Sure. That's one of the things I've used a lot in my career is you don't want spurs closer together than a hand the narrow way or farther apart than the hand lengthwise. So mano a mano. So how when you're working, are you more of using uh, metrics like that, like the size of your hand? Are you more of like this is what we measure? Hands are unreliable and accurate. Yeah. Everybody who works for me, we calibrate them. Okay. We use their body to determine what's a meter. So for me, a meter is from right here to the tip of my finger. So you do measure it out for each mm-hmm. person. To I have get a accurate. woman who worked for me who's pretty tiny. For her, it's her elbow <laughs> to the tip of her finger. Yeah. So a hand doesn't work because my hand and, and Raquel's hand, her hand's about half the size of mine. Mm-hmm. So it is sensitive to those little little differences. It does need to be sort of exact when you're yeah, you, measuring you, out you, sort you, of Yeah, we need to work. calibrate people. I yeah. mean, I, I calibrated my hand a long time ago when I started fishing, and, and I know exactly how long on my hand mm-hmm. it takes to be, you know, a six-inch legal size for that stuff. And what kind of, uh, what are you using these measurements for in the vineyard? Like uh, like a meter, for example. What is that? Is that the distance between vines, or what are you using that for? Well, our focus is on the cordon. That okay. permanent structure of the vine. Right. Uh, and so when I say we're 15.2 kilometers of vineyard, we're 15.2 kilometers of cordon wire. Mm-hmm. And that's the wire that holds that permanent structure of the vine. Then, for instance, starting, uh, you know, wh- where does the season start? Let's say it starts with pruning. Okay. Depending on variety, it's a, then a certain number of spurs per meter and buds per meter. So if you have... Uh, and, and what I've learned is that large-leafed varieties tend to be large clustered varieties, like Limburger, which I'm working on this morning, uh, tends to have fairly large leaves and fairly large clusters. Mm-hmm. So we don't want as many shoots per meter because then it's crowded and congested. So with something like Limburger, we're at 11 shoots per meter. Something like Riesling, which tends to have small leaves and small clusters, will go to 15 shoots per meter. Um, what was that first varietal you said, Limburger? Mm-hmm. I had not heard of that. Is that, uh, is that a, a common wine that I'm unaware of, or is that a somewhat uncommon wine? It was wine? something that was championed by Dr. Walter Clore because it had some wonderful characteristics. It makes really uh, lovely red wine. Uh, it makes great rosé wine. Uh, mm-hmm. it, I've had fabulous sparkling wines made with it. Um, it recovers well from cold injury. Okay. Uh, the things, uh, so I, I, I've always liked Limburger wines. It was, uh, being planted back in the seventies, eighties, uh, Kiona winery was on Red Mountain was the first to really plant it and the first to make Limburger wine. And I was the first person in America to buy first retail customer in America to buy a case of Limburger wine. Because were they the I first really one? Were they the first ones to plant it in the Washington wine country? Is that what you mean? First commercial planting. First commercial planting. Mm-hmm. So, where would you say the Limburger grape originates from? Uh, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, the name uh, it, it's grown throughout what used to be the Austro-Hungarian Empire under okay, different that names. Okay, right. Yeah. So in Austria, it's called Blaufrankisch. <laughs> Most of the names, interestingly enough, refer to blue in French, and yet it's not grown in France. 
in, in France at the experimental station, it's labeled Blau Portuguese or the blue Portuguese grape, and there's any in Portugal. Um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it, it, it's grown in Hungary, Croatia, all these places that used to be part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire mm -hmm. under different names. In, in Hungary, it's Kek Frankos. Mm -hmm. If you've ever had a Hungarian wine that was a blend, it was probably substantially uh, Kek Frankos. So like Igri Bakav or the Bull's Blood wine, that's uh, it tends to be one of the dominant varieties in that blend. So you're talking about the amount of uh, spurs and clusters per distance per meter or whatever uh how do you come up at those numbers is that is that something you decide or is that kind of like this is just what's best to do well it's constantly trying to figure out what is best to do my vineyard uh i, I tell people does that change for you without time oh yes yeah yeah, yeah. yeah i tell people i'm not sure that my vineyard's a commercial vineyard or a really big experimental vineyard that funds itself Mm -hmm. uh, because we're a constant experiment. I have 15 varieties planted in a small area. I mean, to, to answer your question about yeah. acres, uh, our farm is 20 acres and the vineyard occupies about a quarter of it. Okay. So we, we say if we have to, if we have to fill out a government form, we say it's five acres. Okay. That's the area that grapes are planted in, but that is not the amount of grapes that you have. Yeah, and I could say six acres because we maintain substantial headlands around the vineyard to be... Um, a natural reserve. We work really hard on growing things in the vineyard besides grapes. Uh, we're very focused on biodiversity. Mm -hmm. uh, the things we do have resulted in us being able to grow grapes without using any pesticides. And when I say that, people go, well, don't you use sulfur? And sulfur is a pesticide. No, we don't use sulfur. Uh, so why don't you use sulfur then? I don't need to. You don't need to. No. Well, that's a good reason. <laughs> yeah. We use a very different trellis system. We use a very different irrigation system. We use no herbicides. That's very admirable. There's a lot of problems using pesticides and herbicides right now, that's oh. for sure. Well, herbicides in particular, there is no herbicide that grapes are not sensitive to. So my wife's going through chemotherapy for cancer. They basically poison you trying to kill the cancer cells but not kill you. Mm -hmm. And with herbicides, what you're trying to do is poison the plants you think you don't want. It's a very and crude approach. And not poison approach. the grapevines too much. Yeah, it's a somewhat crude approach that uh, ends up washing all those chemicals away in, in our runoff systems and into our rivers. And Well, and the great thing about this area is, no, they don't end up in the rivers because you know most of us are on these deep soils and the water table is 140 or more feet mm -hmm. away and we're not using enough water. It's we pretty don't dry. Have, we don't have runoff. That As a, I tell people, yeah. salmon safe is one of the most meaningless endorsements you can have in southeastern Washington because you've got to be the world's worst farmer to not be salmon safe <laughs> in a vineyard. That's Yeah, we do have a somewhat interesting situation over here with all those all that stuff you were just saying um, because it also just doesn't rain really. So you don't get the surface runoff. Yeah, that's why all the dairies have moved over here. Yeah. So, you know, you know, you brought up sustainable and that's a word I, I really can get into quite a heated debate about. Um, it's sort of, I fluid. don't find any sustainability organization meets my standards. I've considered joining one or two because if you want to change something, you have to be inside the system. I, I have had similar experiences looking into sustainable food, sustainable business, uh, like non-food industries. And every, in, every industry seems to have certain standards that seem to be all-encompassing, like 
that seem to work and then you read into it more and you say, okay, their standards actually don't work. And then you, so if you really want to be sustainable, you just have to go about it and look at, just do it on your own almost. It sounds like that's what you're doing. Well, some groups are better at it than others, but unfortunately sustainable um, is being used by anybody because it, it, it has no clear definition. It's like reserve wine. What's a reserve <laughs> wine? It's whatever the marketing people right. want. Yeah, yeah. You know, what is sustainable? It's whatever the marketing people want. You know, uh, you can find there are organizations that allow you to use glyphosate, Roundup, on multi-seeded mm-hmm. annual species, which means that in no time at all, those are going to become, if they aren't already, glyphosate resistant. Well, that's not sustainable. Right. It's almost like uh, it's- there are organizations that allow you to use uh, water sources that will make render that soil probably unusable in 50 years because of the built up of salts in the soil. That's not sustainable. That's not sustainable. What does it mean to you? Sustainability? Uh, it doesn't. It's bullshit. <laughs> what? Um, let me rephrase the question. What uh, what commonalities do you have with common sustainable industries like what? What practices are you implementing that, quote unquote, people might look at and think are sustainable? Well, we're a certified organic vineyard. Uh, okay. That is the closest certification, I think, that encompasses what we're doing. Uh, there's a lot of aspects of biodynamic that um, I kind of, you might say, in, uh, agree with. But uh, the issue I have with biodynamic is it wants me to make magic potions. And as I self tell people, I can't do biodynamic. I didn't so explain go to what Hogwarts that is. Biodynamic. I don't know how to make magic potions. Well, biodynamic is this thing that came up uh, that got started by non-farming German mystics who were getting uh, advice from beyond in seances. Now I get advice <laughs> from beyond all the time. I mean, I reread Walter Clore's stuff regularly. Um, I, I I read stuff written by Romans 2,000 years ago on growing grapes. Mm -hmm. Um, I get information by reading the books of people who have been dead for a long time that I've never met. Mm -hmm. Um, I get information from books from people who are still alive, like Richard Smart, um, who I have met. Um, But no, I don't get people appearing to me in visions and so the wisdom of the ages. So the issue I have yeah. with biodynamic is a lot of the fundamental things are really great. Biodiversity, really a key. I'm, I'm big on biodiversity. It's why it's why I, you can't find a leafhopper in our vineyard. It's like you can't find a mealybug in our vineyard. Is because we have predators that take care of that for us. Leafhoppers are a sign of bad management. If you have leafhoppers, you're doing something wrong. I mean, other than occasional one here or there. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I have student interns, we have to go look at other vineyards to find leafhoppers and mealybugs and some of these other pests. Mm-hmm. Um, so biodiversity is one of the big cornerstones of biodynamic, but they also get into this stuff like lunar phases. So I was having a, a debate one day with a fellow. We were standing in my vineyard, and it was one of those days where, you know, in the afternoon, the full moon's visible. And I said, well... What is having more influence on this grapevine here, gravitational pull, the moon or you? Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, the moon. I said, no, that's not true. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, you have to understand that the force of gravity quadruples with a doubling 
reducing the distance by half, you quadruple the force of gravity. So you are standing close to this grapevine. You are bigger gravitationally to that grapevine just as you are visually. I'm trying to do the math in my head, and I don't know which has more gravitational pull because the moon is heck of a lot bigger. It is. <laughs> and when you talk about Earth's scale and moving the Pacific Ocean, yeah, the moon's, the moon's going to do a better job of moving the Pacific Ocean than I you I see or what I. you mean, but he's... But... Yeah, right, yeah, right next so to you. So some, uh, some really interesting stuff has been done. You know, um, there's some people in our state that have been working on projects to measure infinitesimal gravitational forces. I mean, they're you, so, building apparatus where sensors are miles apart to... See if they could find gravitational waves. And lo and behold, they can. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> these guys playing around with gravity. Interesting. For winemaking. Well, no, I had nothing to do with wine, really. Just for farming? But or the, the, one of the experiments they were doing, just out of curiosity one day, super sensitive equipment. So they put a container of water on the table. And they had a person walk around a circle around that container. And they could actually measure the tide following the person in that container of water. No way. Because their measurement equipment was so precise. They're measuring things the things that are like an atom thick. So that's a pretty crazy extension of something that I learned when I was studying geology at University of Washington. You would that's how they look for stuff underneath the earth is they just get really fine sensors. Yeah. And they say, okay, there's less gravity underneath us. There's a big open pocket of oil, for example. And that's how they, something of lower density. Yeah. Yeah. And I was blown away that you could even do that. So you describing this to me is blowing my mind. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the equipment we have now to measure stuff. I mean, we're, right. yeah, I mean, we're measuring stuff and, 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 on thicknesses of an atom. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, mind boggling stuff really. And, and so anyway, when you're, you're close to something, <laughs> your gravitational force is strong. And so that's when, what the farther away you go, uh, you know, you, you, if you're three feet from something, your force is X. If you're six feet away from something, you're not half X. You're like a quarter X. Right. It's exponentially lost. Right. So you were having a debate with a gentleman who was sort of trying to argue the gravitational well, the, the, impacts the, the, on the farming? lunar influences on farming? you know, and these are these are old things. You know, it's like if you dig a hole at this time of year when you're trying uh, this phase of the moon, you can't get all the dirt back in. Uh, it, there's a lot of myth stuff, yeah, I'd have yeah, to yeah. say. And so, um, you know, and there's been plenty of research done on this over the years. And people applying the scientific method mm -hmm. in a peer-reviewed experiment don't seem to be able to find much effect on the moon, from the moon. That's a, that's a good sign. You know, other than tides and things. And I'm not saying those aren't important, but as far as the growth of plants, there doesn't really seem to be much. Well, back before all of those scientific findings, there's probably people used to look all around for, uh, signs to help them improve their lives and their farming. And I mean, just, I can imagine the lore around farming and winemaking or anything was probably so abundant before the scientific revolutions. They probably thought different weather patterns in the moon and everything probably played influences on it because well, they were looking for ways to, understand their natural world more but they didn't have the means right and if you look at at animals mm -hmm. i have critters i've always had critters right a full moon really definitely has an impact on animal behavior because when the moon is full 
you can be wandering around in the middle of the night and see things clearly. That would especially mean a lot to animal, a wild animal. Yeah. Especially every animal has way better vision than a human. So um, that's why a lot of animals are relatively nocturnal. And animals that are less nocturnal, like my sheep, <laughs> uh, they're more likely to get up and go grazing in the middle of the night when there's a full moon because they're feeling like they can see the neighborhood coyote lurking. Yeah. Whereas on a pitch black night, no, they huddle up and stay close. They don't go wandering. So, so the, the moon definitely has effects yeah. on behaviors, Yeah, but we're not really able to say it has much effect on plants. Um, so you're talking about biodiversity. What are, so clearly you got something else going on besides wine grapes at your place, right? Or- uh, I'm doing experiments with planting things, but also encouraging the things that just are going to grow. So yeah. people come to my vineyard and say, say, well, what do you do about the weeds? And I go, well, point out a weed. And they'll point to a, a mustard. And I go, that's not a weed. That's a beneficial plant. So is a weed an invasive species? Is that what you mean? No, a weed is a plant that grows where you don't want it. Okay. So on my farm, there's, there, there's really only three things that we encounter on our farm that we call weeds. Goathead. I hate goat heads. Not allowed on my farm. Yeah. Never been allowed on any farm I'm in charge of. They stick in your shoes. When we bought our place, <laughs> it was infested with it. Yeah. Not now. I can walk around barefoot. They're everywhere around here, though, like yeah. the greater region. Yeah, they're very yeah. common, Yeah, especially in places that use lots of herbicides. Um, scotch thistle. Okay. Not allowed on our farm. It's a, a nuisance. It doesn't tend to grow much in vineyards, but we have quite a bit of our farm devoted to pasture for the animals. Mm-hmm. Not allowed. Uh, a plant called hound's tongue, which is toxic to livestock. Again, hardly ever find any in the vineyard. It's too dry. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I'm mowing pasture, I have to stop and dig it out on a regular basis. Do you find there are uh, animals that get in your vineyard and, and eat your grapes or or eat at the yes, leaves? Yes, that's why we cover the whole vineyard with bird netting come variation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you cover the whole thing. We cover the whole thing. Yeah. One of the advantages to our, our trellis system is it's very easy to put netting over the entire top of the vineyard. We can drive underneath it. We can work underneath it. Oh, that's awesome. We don't go up and over and back down. Mm. It goes right over the top. So you've got, you were talking about how uh, you have natural biodiversity that controls the sort of nuisance bugs and stuff like that. Yeah. How, I mean, what, t- what animals t- t- eat these leaf? Cutter bugs. <laughs> well, the leaf hopper, leaf hopper, which looks like a miniature grasshopper, is one of the more common things. It likes like dense, how do you keep that population down? Well, first of all, it likes dense shady canopies. Okay, we don't have a dense shady canopy because dense shady canopies are also what powdery mildew likes. Okay, so if you get rid of dense shady canopies, you immediately get rid of the environment favorable to powdery mildew and. Leaf hoppers. Okay. Okay. Leaf hoppers are small. They're bite sized for a lot of things. In the stage that they cause the most problems in the vineyard, the nymphal stage, that are even smaller and more soft bodied and not very mobile. So everything likes to Every eat. bird and. Well, yeah. they're, they're too small for the birds, really. Oh, really? Uh, no, it's the ladybugs, mm. uh, the lace wings. Yeah. The uh, all the wasps and things like that. You know, the number one predator of leafhoppers is actually a tiny wasp that lays its egg inside of a leafhopper egg. And a leafhopper egg is about animals the size. are so wild. A leafhopper egg is smaller than the period at the end of the sentence in the newspaper. Okay, so those are tiny in the tiny tiny the wasp eggs. Yeah, look for those eggs. You got to look hard to find them. 
Uh, and the wasp lays its egg inside that. The egg hatches out, eats the contents of the leafhopper egg, goes through its metamorphosis in the shell of the leafhopper egg and comes out as an adult. Humans are so boring. Animals can do the craziest stuff. And as an adult, that wasp is a vegan. What do you mean? It relies on pollen and nectar for a food source. Oh, but it kill it ends up killing these leafhoppers just through the way it lays its eggs. All the wasps you're familiar with, the paper wasps, yeah. that can be kind of a nuisance when they decide to build a nest next to your doorway. And, and mm-hmm. you know, they're pretty tolerant, but when you start getting within a couple feet of them or slamming the door, it kind of gets them riled up. For sure. Uh, as adults, they're they're vegans. They're feeding on pollen and nectar as they hunt mm-hmm. insects. So that paper wasp flies around, finds a caterpillar a cutworm larva, let's say, stings it. It doesn't kill it. It paralyzes it. It picks it up and takes it back to its nest, stuffs that bug inside of a cell, and lays an egg on it, and then closes up the cell. <laughs> that is so ridiculous. Wasps are... Tr- so, as a general group... We why did evolution it, do that? That's crazy. Why not? I mean... It's a great way. Clearly it favors. So, you know, as a developing from an egg, you need a lot, you know, in your early stages of growth, you know, going from tiny organism to a larger thing, you need Mm -hmm. a lot of protein. Um, So meat. But once you're an adult, you don't. Mm -hmm. So hummingbirds, it's nectar primarily and pollen, but they also hunt small insects. And the adults hunt lots of small insects to feed the babies. Would you ever think about... Making honey, having bees at your place? Uh, I've had a beehive on my farm for quite a while. A friend who was uh, keeping bees uh, and concerned about all the pesticides in the apple orchards around him brought his hive over. But bees are not relevant, you might say, to um, grapes because they're not pollinized by mm-hmm. any insects. They're pollinated by wind. They, Yeah, bees pollinate our cherries for sure, but mm-hmm. it's not a thing with our grapes. Right, but you wouldn't make. I mean, uh, we're in bloom today, and today is a perfect day for a grapevine to be in bloom uh, because it's dry, mm-hmm. it's sunny, and we got a light breeze to move that pollen around. So the wind just pollinates it. Yep. You don't need the bees, just like grass. Um, but would you ever use bees to make honey? Uh, I have, but yeah, I, I I don't have time to keep bees really. It's just not. It's low on the list. Yeah, that's something I'd like to do at some point is have my own honey operation going. But uh, I also don't really like bees. So <laughs> <laughs> now bees are really cool, and uh, having a beehive around is not a problem because you know you just yeah. don't walk up and bang on the box. I've heard that you just need to be confident. Maybe wear your suit if you're into that. But well, the biggest issue I've been stung a few times. It's almost always been when I've been walking fairly quickly close to the beehive, and a bee buzzes. You know, we we have a collision. The bee ends up in the collar of my shirt. And yeah, and it just and doesn't it, know where it yeah, is. And, it's yeah, it's frantic to get away. It thinks it's being attacked and it stings yeah. me. But um, no, I mean, yeah, I learned a long time ago, uh, honeybees are not an issue. The thing about bees to me is it's like the only animal that I can't get away from or, or fight if I had to because it just zips around me and can sting me. Like, I'm not really afraid of like snakes or spiders or anything, but bees, I feel like they always get me and I'm they always just have the upper hand and I don't know why I don't like bees. But, uh, the I, but they are so vital to our ecosystems that I also love bees. I just Well, and I pay a lot more attention to some of the other bees than the honeybee. Right, you were talking about the wasp. Um, and- I'm waiting, for instance, to see my first bumblebee of the season. 
Yeah. Because bumblebees uh, require a, a, a diverse ecosystem. Mm-hmm. We have uh, a fair amount of vets growing around on the farm, uh, purple blossoms right now, and the bumblebees seem to really like vetch. And so uh, you want to find a bumblebee, go find a patch of vetch and watch, and you'll see one. Not a lot of them. But I, I consider that a sign of environmental health. If you don't mm-hmm. have bumblebees, you're not, yeah, there's something, yeah, that's not a good thing. There should yeah. be bumblebees. Um, I have planted oregano in the vineyard. Uh, my son and I were observing an oregano plant in our, our yard, and there were just all sorts of insects coming in to the blossoms. And somebody had given this little bug collection kit. So it was a net and a little box with a magnifier on it. <laughs> That's fun. So we spent about an hour and a half swooping the net through the uh, oregano. And, of course, there were the big obvious things. There were honeybees and bumblebees and mason bees. And mm-hmm. There were you know some of the, the bigger wasp things. But there were all these things that were really tiny and we didn't know what they were. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these things are really, really tiny. I mean, smaller than a fruit fly. <laughs> that's small and almost all of them were what we call parasitoids things in this wasp family that make their living like the anagrosepos wasp that feeds on the leafhoppers by parasitizing things by laying their eggs on something that consumes that other insect and yet they're coming to the oregano because as adults they need pollen and nectar mm-hmm. so I didn't realize how attractive oregano was and the fact that Oh, it doesn't need a ton of water. Yeah. We're able to establish it on the ends of some of our rows where we can get a little bit more water to it than it would have in the middle of the vineyard. And yeah, it's interesting to sit there on a afternoon when the oregano is in bloom and just watch all these things coming in. Totally. You seem to be pretty engaged with ecology and the environment. Is that just out of Well, I studied passion? ecology at the University of Washington. That, I was going to ask and if you studied that's that. That's what gave me the, the background. But I've been an organic gardener since I was seven years old. What year did you graduate from UW? I didn't. Oh, you didn't graduate? No, I haven't graduated from anywhere. <laughs> you and my dad. <laughs> it's pretty common. I've taken all sorts of classes. And I, I, yeah. I, you know, I was trying to add up. The, somebody asked me the other day, you know, what colleges have you been to? And I started adding up and I think I had enough fingers, but I wasn't sure I remembered them all. <laughs> um, well, just for my curiosity, because I went to the University of Washington, what years were you there? Uh, 74, 75. Okay. Uh, gosh, I bet that place uh, looks so different now if you were to go back. that I feel like they're just const- building new buildings each year. and it's They just- are, but I mean, it was a big complex then. Right, I right. Mean. I mean, they have the old, like the old campus obviously looks the same, but uh, yeah. Yeah, driving by, yeah. There, as you say, there's always something going up in the mm-hmm. neighborhood. Yeah, I always loved the, like, so I went to that college for the full four years, and I moved from a small town to that college, and it felt just huge to me. And then I found the, within the college, the College of the Environment, and all those people were just, that was, so those were all the classes you would have been taking in the College of the Environment, and those were the coolest people ever. And I cannot speak highly enough about that. So it's interesting that you went there back in the seventies. I'd be interested for you to see the place now, but yeah, I drive, I drive by there all the time while I'm delivering wine. Yeah. Yeah. You make it out to Seattle sometimes then? Uh, I'm generally in Seattle every three weeks. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's kept us going during the pandemic is that we have been delivering wine to customers in the Seattle area for 15 years. 
My wife has a long history. She grew up there. Her family's there, has a long history of going over about every three weeks to mm-hmm. spend a couple of days with her elderly mother, mm-hmm. help her with stuff. Um, and in the process, visiting family and friends and dropping wine off. And we've really scaled that up during the pandemic. So right. about every three weeks, I put 20 to 30 cases of wine in the car and go deliver wine. So Gosh, yeah, drive by the UW all the time. Oh yeah, there you go. Yep. Uh, where do you drop off your wine in Seattle? Uh, we deliver it directly to people's doorsteps. Okay, yeah. That's so and familiar. I, we I, do such a similar thing I, with Portland. Yeah, I yeah. cover uh, a typical trip. Tip trip will be the north end, say Edmonds, down to as far south as Tacoma. Okay, so you're and, just a delivery man for yeah, a day or two. Uh, yeah, I, I try and get out early in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's typically a 12 to 15 hour day, depending on how many stops and what territory. Well, and I do it in a single day so that I don't have to stop anywhere or go anywhere. Right. Uh, like I said, because of the pandemic, I, I deliver wine to people's doorsteps, mm-hmm. wear a mask, bring the wine to their porch, let them know I'm there, mm-hmm. chat with them from a distance. Yeah. And I actually have learned I have to set a, a, a timer on my phone to go off after a short while. Otherwise, they'll keep me there talking. <laughs> you got to keep going. Because they haven't talked to anybody for two weeks. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's too familiar. Yeah. That that three-week schedule you're talking about, I'm in the reverse. So I live in Seattle, and I come over here about once a month to just do different stuff over here, hop out the parents. Right now I'm doing this podcast. So um, we're probably doing this every month. <laughs> you yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because, um, you know, we discovered a long time ago people are hesitant to come to this side of the mountains in the winter, but they're still drinking wine. Well, the thing about coming over here in the winter is it can be cold, but it's sunny. And it, I actually, it's my favorite time to come over here because Seattle in the winter isn't that cool. <laughs> but for a lot of people, it's the pass. Ah! Yeah. I mean, it, it's hilarious. But people the pass always, is so low and it. People always say, well, how was the pass? Well, as usual, barren wet. Traffic was going 70 miles an hour. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, gosh, it's like a it's a pretty low pass too. Like Snoqualmie, the ski resort up there is is kind of known for not really having crazy weather. Like they don't get a lot of snow, and yeah, I don't I don't know. Yeah, and, 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 and really, the Department of Transportation does really a terrific job. And you know, the pass is closed sometimes, but it's it's rarely closed for long. It's usually closed because a bunch of idiots decided they could drive like they do on TV way too fast on snowy roads. Yeah. So then they have to close the road down to clear all the accidents or they close the road for a while for avalanche control. And Mm -hmm. it's more likely to be 15 minutes than an hour. It's the kind of thing where if if you just check the weather beforehand, you could probably. Yeah. We we have occasionally uh, adjusted our delivery schedule because that day it was going to just be bucketing down snow. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's no reason that we have to do it that day. So, right. You mentioned, uh, your son, is he involved in the winery at all or just, is he just kind of, uh, he is not, he, uh, decided that being a uh, wine grower was way too much work. And I think that's hilarious because he's finishing up at Western Washington, uh, university. He fell in love with theater in fourth grade. He's graduating soon with degrees in drama, creative writing and business. That is, can you imagine the work you have to do to get three degrees? Um, I could see drama and creative writing having an overlap class or two, but none of those would overlap with business. <laughs> no. And uh, in my family, if you want to go to college, you're greatly encouraged, but you earn your own way. Yeah. Well, so he currently has, I believe, three jobs. Hats off to him for doing that. That's about all, all I've got for you. I mean, we've, we've taken an hour. I don't want to take up any more of your time, okay. but I really appreciate you coming in and 
and chatting with me. Well, the one thing I want to want to state is, you yeah. know, I've worked really hard on on the systems I've developed. So, to the best of our knowledge, we are the only wine estate on Earth producing ingredient labeled wine from grapes grown without pesticides. There you go. And there's a lot of talk about natural wine, which is a whole other thing. Um, that everybody has their own interpretation of that. Um, and I say, you know, really, um, I, I applaud people. I, I've made wine where one ingredient is grapes, but uh, my focus now is making wines that age in the bottle for a while. And that doesn't work without some of the things we use. So uh, I tell people, uh, you're concerned about what you eat. You should be. Mm-hmm. I think the best certification that's available to us is organic, although biodynamic kind of fits right in there, except mm-hmm. if you're a biodynamic. If I was biodynamic, I'd have to start spraying things. Which I would is, have to spray these preparations. That's so odd. And that, uh, hats off to you been, for not doing that. Yeah, who haven't been that haven't been able to be established in a scientific study to have any any effect. So I'd have I I don't own a sprayer. To be mm. biodynamic, I'd have to have one. Yeah, that's that's odd. And uh, hats off to you for not doing that. We need more farmers like you that are not trying to spread pesticides everywhere. Well, but no, biodynamic doesn't necessarily require use of pesticides. It, it's these preparations that are like compost teas and nettle teas and biodynamic. Sil- yes, but you don't silica's. use pesticides at all. So th- that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, except Limburger is a is a problem child. It's very sensitive to powdery mildew. Uh, it's the only thing I have used anything on in since 2012. I have used thylid oil, which is basically baby oil. Well, that's the thing. Pesticide, like you said, sulfur earlier, it, it didn't used to be these factory-made chemicals. It, it used to be more of a, like before like World War II, basically, uh, it, it used to be natural elements, sulfur, for example, and different sort of elements like that. And we just transitioned into, I mean, at one point we were using like DDT and stuff. Like we transitioned into all this, all these chemicals and this terrible stuff. And we need to be going sort of back to the long-term view of farming before we started getting all industrial with our chemicals. Yes. When we started the bio, when we started the organic program at Badger Mountain in 1988, um, Dr. Walter Clore was still alive and working with us. And as he said, okay, we're just going to start looking at going back to the agricultural practices of 1930. Yeah. And uh, where we didn't have all these these things that um, mm-hmm. we didn't then, that so many of these things that we thought were a silver bullet, uh, well, it turns out they weren't silver. Mm-hmm. They were something more toxic. Yeah. Well, like I said, thank you for coming in. You bet. I hope to see you around. You will. And uh, yeah, have a good day.